Hello, and welcome back to the Terrible Reading Club, a little series within our podcast that I like to think of as great books for terrible times or about terrible things. The books themselves are not terrible. They are actually the opposite. So for a lot of people, including myself, one of the terrible times of life is adolescence, being a teenager. And I think this is true for the vast majority of people. It just kind of sucks. It's like it doesn't matter really where you live or, you know, there's just kind of nothing to do and everything to do. That's why you always see just groups of teenagers just standing around. I was at the mall recently. There were teenagers just standing around at the mall. And all I could think of was, huh, it's been two decades since I was a teenager and we were just standing around at the mall. This is a generational thing, just standing around at the mall. They did not have an Orange Julius, which is how I knew that I was not in a time warp because also these kids were wearing the same clothes that we wore in 1999 or 2001. Bizarre. Anyways, being a teenager, but reading about teenagers is not terrible. And I am a lover of young adult fiction, which is strange in some ways because when I was an actual young adult, there wasn't a lot in this genre. But once I hit adulthood, you better believe that I was a full-on twihard. When I found out that there was a book about a love triangle between a virginal human girl, a 117-year-old vampire, and a hot werewolf boy, uh, yeah, I was into it, okay? There is so much to love about YA as a genre, and one of my favorite YA authors is Kathleen Glasgow. Since I picked up her 2016 novel, Girl in Pieces, I have been a huge fan. I actually got to do an event with her in Minneapolis for her 2019 novel, How to Make Friends with the Dark, and then her latest book, You'd Be Home Now, arrived at my home, and I read it in one sitting. Because Kathleen is a master of exploring the darkest parts of adolescence, the fear, the anxiety, the danger of feeling grown up but not yet having the power and the frontal lobe of an actual grown up, and doing that with care and with tenderness. I have yet to read a Kathleen Glasgow book and not cry. So You'd Be Home Now follows a high school girl named Emery. She's a rich girl in a town that is being crushed by the opioid epidemic. Emery herself is being crushed by the role that she's forced to play in her home and in her community. She is the youngest child of a family of three kids, and she's got a hot, popular older sister, and then she's got a troublemaking brother who just got back from rehab, and she has no room to be herself, especially because what sent her brother back to rehab was a car accident that killed one of the most popular girls in school. If you've never read YA because you think, oh, gosh, get a life, that's for kids, I hope this conversation with Kathleen, where, yes, we do discuss the shortcomings and the merits of Twilight, changes your mind. Here we go. First, I want to talk to you about the genre of YA. You are a writer of young adult fiction. What is YA as defined today versus as it was defined when we were young adults? And what drew you to this as a genre of writing? Well, so first I want to say that because I've I've now reached like crone age, when I was 12 and 13 and I was picking out books about 
teenagers at a haunted bookshop in Tucson, which no longer exists, they weren't called young adult. It was just like teen fiction, I guess. And I, they were all in paperback, which was awesome. There was none of this hardcover <laughs> business that I think most YA should come out in paperback. And they were a variety of like experiences and ranges of emotional maturity, but it wasn't quite what it became. I think when Twilight came out, there was something very specifically targeted to a certain audience age. And so for me, when I say that I write for teens, that means that the stories that I write have to do with adolescent experiences, things and emotional journeys that are particular to adolescents. Adults can read them and they might find something there that they can latch onto and find meaningful. But it's the stories that I write are they're coming of age stories there and they are about the emotional experience of adolescents in particular. So these kids do not have the tools that we have as adults that you would reflect in a book that was for adults. And yet so many readers of YA are actually A's. We are adults. You mentioned Twilight. I was a Twihard. <laughs> Strange thing to confess over a decade later. But what do you think draws adults to read books that are targeted to teenagers? I think it's the plot. And I think it's the depth of the emotional quality of the experience being written about that maybe they haven't really thought about since they were a teenager, or maybe they're revisiting it. I think it's mainly the plots and the presentation of the story. I will go to my grave defending Twilight because Bella's story, like her thoughts and feelings mattered in that story. Her thoughts and feelings about being a girl and, you know, loving Edward, everybody can identify with that, whatever age you are. And her thoughts and feelings were taken seriously. And that's the kind of way that I really like where particularly girls' experiences are taken seriously and given resonance on the page. And it's not, their feelings aren't treated as fluff or something that they'll get over later on. You know why a lot of it is fast paced. There's a lot of different types of YA that you can read. There's something for everybody. And sometimes I think that in YA in particular, there are discussions of things that don't happen all the time in literature for adults like mental health or addiction and some tougher topics. Because usually in some adult books, they're framed in a different way. Like if you have a character who's an alcoholic, there's also this subplot of like they witnessed a murder. Or did they? Because they were in a blackout. Do you know that the alcoholism isn't the main plot line? Things like that. And I I think a lot of adults really do want to read about that. And to revisit Twilight, I think one of the reasons why Bella's thoughts and feelings were taken seriously is because she was dating a 117-year-old man who could read her mind. (laughs) Right? And you know what? That's fantastic. (laughs) And you you can say everything you want. Like, well, that's like an inappropriate relationship because she's a teenager and he's 117. And it's also like, yeah, well, you know what? In real life too, that happens where older men prey on younger girls. It happens, but also when you're a teenager, 
you like older guys. No one's going to be able to tell you any different because everything is heightened when you're a teenager. There's no gray. It's black or white. Like that's it. You are irrevocably in love. Yes. With Edward Cullen. I read those in my 20s. And you know what I needed out of that book that I got, Kathleen? I needed a devoted boyfriend who cared about me and admired me, even though I was. And, you know, she says this all the time, basically in in, in her mind is like, or the way that Bella's described at least, you know, oh, well, she's nothing special, right? She's just a plain Jane, regular girl. And I do think that's what drew me in and made me love the books. And then the movies was I needed to feel adored. I wanted so badly to feel adored or even basically liked. You wanted to feel seen for who you are. Like everyone else it feels like is dismissing you for what you perceive are faults. And here comes this completely hot, poetic, like pretty kind guy. And he's like gorgeous to boot. So what if he's 117? He is paying attention to you and he adores you. When you're a teenager, you have to step beyond your family because you're like, well, I know you love me, but it's really important to to have someone else outside love you. You know, it is a form of validation. Like, Oh, so I am worthy of something. Someone else loved me now that I'm out in the world. And that's, you know, I think that we forget that as adults, that that's really important for like teens is to feel that sense of being adored and being seen and and recognized beyond your family role, like daughter, son, you're your own person. Yeah. So what was your teenage experience like? Were you in a love triangle with a vampire and a werewolf? What were you doing? And what was your outer life like? And what was your inner life like at that age? Well, first I want to, and the main Twilight thing was saying that my teen started reading Twilight. And I was like, yeah, go. And then came to me and said, um, it's very creepy that Edward is watching Bella sleep. Like, that is really wrong. And I said, yeah, but, and they said, you know, I just, no. And then they moved on and I was like, okay. But, you know, this is, this goes back to like, kids can recognize problematic material. They are smart enough to know what they're comfortable reading and what they're not. I never really thought about that when I was reading Twilight. I was just like, oh, he's like watching her sleep because he's protecting her. (laughs) Yes. You know. Oh, I, I never, I never thought that him following her to Port Angeles was bad. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, so romantic. He like followed her and then rescued her in a Volvo. <laughs> like, <laughs> he went after her to save her. Yeah. Yeah. He just needed to make sure she was safe. And I was in well into my twenties when I read that. And I believe only a teenager, my niece pointed that out to me as inappropriate behavior. I was like, yeah, that is, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) They're smart. It takes a long time for some of us to realize those things. And, you know, I wasn't in a love triangle with a werewolf and a vampire when I was a teenager, but I had a very long not great relationship that started when I was like 15 and lasted until I was 21. And that was really, that was like an all encompassing thing. 
it was like explosive at moments and it was very like clingy for the both of us. It was not healthy, but none of those things seemed to matter to me at the time. All that mattered was that I could be with this person because at that age, you don't ever think, well, you know, someone else will love me someday. You don't feel that way. You think like, that's it. And I, I was thinking about that person this morning and I was like, you know what? Wow, he really made me crawl some places to get his affection. <laughs> still, I'm still thinking about that. Like I'm still learning about things that I should have learned a long time ago. So your high school or your adolescence sounds like... I don't want to like put words in your mouth, but I mean, how would you characterize your adolescence? Was it difficult? Was it on the scale of Bayside High School to Euphoria High School? <laughs> where did you land? My experience was probably much closer to Euphoria than Bayside. That's not the case for all teenagers. Some teenagers have perfectly adequate adolescences and they get through it and everything was fine and, you know, woohoo. And it's like some don't. And sometimes that's because of like, internal factors or external factors, but I was definitely like on the side where, oh, look, I'm 16 and I just got expelled from school. (laughs) You got expelled from school? I did. And I wish I could say that it was for something super exciting, but it wasn't. It's just because I I stopped going. And so it was for chronic truancy because I preferred to like take the bus to downtown Tucson and uh, do drugs with my friends, basically, and hang out go to thrift shops and stuff like that. But my mother was very, very supportive in the way that she was like, okay, that wasn't working for you. So you're 16, you're gonna get your GED and you're gonna get a job and you're gonna pay for your own phone. And in the fall, I'm gonna pay for you to take two classes at Pima Community College. You can choose the classes, but you will get good grades and we will move on from there. And we did. That's really good parenting. You know, I mean, she adapted to the situation rather than saying, well, I'm just going to send you to a different high school. She was like, that's not working for you. I feel like that's very uh, rare for that era of parenting. That's so impressive. That feels like some 21st century parenting. She was, I mean, she was very adaptable to difficult situations. and, And I think she was right. And I wish that more people realized that educationally speaking, and socially speaking, there are some kids who should not be in traditional high schools and that perhaps trying to suck it up until senior year is not for them. And they might actually thrive if they were let loose. Since I also worked in academic administration for a long time, I'm going to confidently say that we should really stop pressuring all kids to go to college at 18. Uh, they'll be fine if they go to college at 26, 27 or 30 or 40. 30, 35. My grandma went in her 80s. Like I saw so many kids who were not socially prepared. You know, college is really, it's great if you want to think that it's the place for you to discover what you want to study. But for some kids, they just have no idea and they have no interest in being there and they're lost. They're not emotionally ready to be there. And let them, let your kid go out and get a job live in a little apartment with a couple of friends, see what it's like to be out there, join AmeriCorps, you know, go to Europe, like teach English as a second language. 
let them do other things. Yeah. You have all the time in the world to sort of be an adult and get on, you know, this, this, what feels like a perpetual motion machine that just, you know, winds back and forth and back and forth. And I felt that same kind of urgency when I started college and I wasn't ready at all. And I really could have benefited from some flexibility in thought and in what life could be. And as an adolescent, the books that I read were primarily, you know, literary fiction, not just things that were assigned to me, but my mother would read something and pass it along to me. Yeah. there was just this huge chasm in books after age, I would say 13. I was reading the Anastasia series. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I love Anastasia. Oh, I loved Anastasia. And I would walk up to the kids bookshop that was like seven blocks from my house and they were all slim little paperbacks. I could afford them. If they were missing one, they would order one for me. It was so lovely. And then there was just sort of nothing, like nothing in that space. And, you know, it was sort of a time before the internet really and online shopping. So there probably were things in the market that I just wasn't seeing. But what I had access to was really slim. And YA is a huge, huge market now. now. It's It's huge. huge now. And your books, I obviously did not read as a teenager. I have read them as an adult. And your books all have a very serious issue at the core of them. Uh, the first book of yours that I read was Girl in Pieces, which is so affecting, so physically affecting for me and is for the benefit of our listeners, is a book about a girl who self-harms by cutting, but is also about the ways that the world around this girl has harmed her and the way that she reacts to it. This book, You'd Be Home Now, is about the opioid crisis. What compels you to bring the opioid crisis to a book for teenagers? The origins of writing the book happened when I was having a conversation with my editor about what my next book was going to be about. And she asked me if I would consider writing a contemporary retelling of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which is a play about Grover's Corners and it's three acts. And there's a character who's the stage manager who speaks directly to the audience and knows the history of everyone in the town past and future. And I said, yes, because I love that play. And I love the ways that, that play, which came out in 1936, examines difficult topics through a small town lens because there's suicide in the play. There's alcoholism, like Thornton Wilder isn't shying away from anything that's difficult. And I thought for sure that if Thornton Wilder was going to write that play today, that it would probably be centered around the opioid crisis. But what I wanted to do with the book was really talk about the collateral damage around addiction which is family members, in particular, Emmy, who narrates the book, whose brother Joey is just out of rehab when the book starts. Because we don't talk enough about what addiction does to the people around the addict. And as a person in recovery, I have all the sympathy and empathy in the world for people who are suffering from addiction. And I tried really hard to give Joey's point of view in the book about why 
he took drugs and how hard it was for him to be out in a world that didn't support his recovery. But I really wanted to write from the point of view of a sister who loves her brother, who's watching her brother basically kill himself with drugs. Like he's really on the precipice. And I I wanted to examine that point of view because I haven't seen that point of view in young adult books very much. Usually when I'm writing books about these topics, the main character is the one going through them. And I wanted to have someone that we normally don't pay attention to talking to readers about what it's like to feel that way, that you want to save someone so much, but you ultimately can't. And you have to be able to set boundaries in order to live your own life. Because when you're in that situation, you want to do so much for that person to help them get better. But it's often at a cost of your own mental health and your own growth and maturity. And you feel guilty, like Emmy. Your brother's over there trying to stay sober and you want to go kiss the boy next door. And you feel guilty about that. But you should be able to have that life too. And it was it was important for me to to write from her point of view for this book. Also, no one can outright Thornton Wilder. So I kind of had to like springboard away <laughs> from the play at a certain point. And my editor was like, I think you just step away now. You have enough of your own book now. So you just do what you need to do. Yeah. You mentioned wanting to center the story around people who are typically considered at the periphery of an experience like addiction when really, you know, Emmy is at the center of her own experience yes. of yeah. that. She is addiction adjacent and she's experiencing it in her own way. So if you have like last year, more than 80,000 people dying of drug overdoses, that's just last year. And I think it's going to be bigger this year. You have to think about it how far those tentacles spread. Each person had family. Each person had friends or a community that they were involved in. They had teachers, doctors, people they knew on the street. How far do those tentacles spread then when just one person dies of a drug overdose? How many people has their addiction affected that are not getting adequate help, who might be feeling guilty because they're like, I should have done more, who might be feeling guilty because they're saying, why couldn't I save this person, who might be feeling guilty because they said, I had to let that person go to save myself, which is an entirely valid emotional response. Like sometimes you, at a certain point, you have to decide when addiction is involved, I can't be around you anymore. And in those cases, for me, I think that that's where civic resources really need to take the lead. Like we do very little for people with addiction in this country. We do very little for people who have ended up on the streets. We prefer to just walk on by. And as in the book, which also addresses the homelessness problem in Millhaven, There are people, those are somebody's family. And we do very little to help them. It's as though we say, well, you put yourself there. Good luck to you. And I I think that on a personal level, to me, I think that's very shameful. 
Yeah, we do very little for people, period, in this country. And there's definitely seems to be a threshold at which you just sort of cease to be a person. And now you are an issue. You are a problem and uh, not even a problem to solve, just a, 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 just problem a problem to sort of, you're just a problem. You're just a problem. People say that all the time, right? That like the homelessness issue, like the homelessness problem. It's like, well, these are, these are people. These are people with addiction. These are people who don't have a place to live. It is deeply shameful to live in a country where we have so much excess and so many people with literally nothing. And we are processing these issues as adults with, you know, some more context than we had when we were teenagers with more of our brain function coming online. But you said something really interesting at the beginning of this conversation when we were talking about Twilight, when we were talking about Bella, which is the importance of having your feelings validated and feeling seen either in real life or in art. When you are a teenager, your relationships, not just your friendships, but you know, your family relationships, everything feels so intense and Boundaries are hard for most adults to establish. You have to learn boundaries. It takes years to figure out what your own boundaries are going to be. Teenagers don't, you don't have any boundaries. They don't have any boundaries as a kid. I mean, you, you have kids, you have not, your children have no boundaries. That's why we can't be in the bathroom by ourselves because they're like, what are you doing? And they open the door and they're like, why did you lock the door? Like there are no boundaries whatsoever. It's something this that you, morning <laughs> yeah. I'm in the shower. Okay. Opens the door. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, I'm in the shower. I'm literally in the shower. And like the water's still going, you know, there's like a, a I'm like, I can't hear you. I will not hear you till this shower is over. Oh, I'll just yell louder. Oh, I'll just come in. I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember the days of early motherhood where you would not like bathe for like a week. Yeah, or they'd be in the bouncy seat while you pee, like in yeah. the bathroom carrying the whole seat in. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then and then they're older and you're like, well, you can hang out by yourself while I take this shower. And then you're like, oh no, that's not happening now either. And you yeah. wonder like when. But you don't no one has any boundaries. You don't you don't have any boundaries as a teenager. You're trying to figure them out. Adults can't tell you what the boundaries should be because you have to figure you have to be autonomous and have your own thoughts and feelings. And you only, I think you only really start learning things, maybe for me anyway, in your like late thirties or early forties, where some things <laughs> you're like, I'm not doing that. No, no, that's a hard no. It's a gift when any author does this, but I love the ending of a book after the story is over, when an author gives us a little extra treat, which you did in this book. Can you tell our listeners the story of the little scrap of paper that you found? I did when things were open before the pandemic, uh, school visits. And I generally, when I do school visits, because my books tackle such, uh, sensitive topics that kids are, who are listening are feeling, but they don't like raise their hand and be like, me too. I'm in the depths of despair. I mean, that's not the way it works. So it tends to be very quiet and we do writing exercises. And then I get a lot of kids who email me later or come up to me afterwards. And so we were doing a writing exercise called My Biggest Secret, and it's about how 
to take something from your real life and turn it into fiction. And I, I'm a big believer in post-it notes for jotting down ideas. And so I had the students write the biggest secret they'd never told anyone on a post-it note. And I wasn't going to have them read it because that's a big deal. And then we would springboard from one of those secrets into how to turn it into fiction. And one, once you've written down what you think is your biggest, most shameful secret, there's a real emotional relief that you have. Like you might not have said it out loud, but you wrote it on a piece of paper. And that's a big weight off your shoulders to admit that to yourself. And that's important for teens to be able to do. And so if you, if you write like, I stole $20 from my mom's purse, I'm going to write that on the whiteboard and say, okay, now you have to answer these questions. That's the first line of your book is I stole $20 from my mom's purse. Who stole the $20? Why 20? What are they going to use the $20 for? Did your mom find out? And if, you know, you want to write, you like, I like setting my stories in space, then it's going to be, I stole the C-14 super reactor from the bunk space beneath my mother's cot in section C. Why did you steal that C-14 super reactor, right? What ship are you on out there in space? You can turn it around. And once you've done that, naturally, your imagination will kick in and it's no longer you with that secret. It's a character. And different things will happen to them because of that secret. Because it's not you. It's a character. And you will build upon them. But this girl, when I was cleaning up afterwards, I had seen this girl in the audience. And she was obviously sad after she wrote the note. And I wondered, you know, what she had written. But I don't ask anyone for their notes. And I knew where she was sitting. And I was registering her as someone that perhaps was going to talk to me afterwards. But she did not. And then we were cleaning up afterwards. And when I came to her chair, I found a post-it note on the ground that said, I love my sister, but I hate my sister because she's a drug addict. And I thought it was just really touching and painful to see that because I could understand that because I've been on both sides of that. And she loves her sister, but she hates her sister. And how do you live that way? when someone else is sucking all the energy out of the room and there's none left for you and you feel invisible. And then that really helped me when I was thinking of Emmy's character and how she would feel because she loves Joey, but she can't admit that a part of her also hates Joey because he's taking a lot of her teenage life from her. And that's a hard thing to reconcile, especially for a teenager. We'll be right back. I think teenagers today have the benefit of parents who, if their parents are of a certain age, have been to therapy, have maybe like offered them some mental health resources and access to the internet where at least some of these concepts are available to them. But having that information available to you is different from being able to act on it. And every character in this book, we're talking about feeling seen, every character in this book feels unseen. And a part of that is sort of that natural, you sort of mentioned individuation, right? Where I, I want, I need to be my own person away from my family, but there's also this distance between the characters that none of them want, but none of them know how to bridge. 
They don't because they're all stuck in their roles. Nobody's allowed to go beyond that role. Like Joey will never, he feels like he will never not be the bad one in the family. No matter how many days of sobriety he has, he feels it's never going to be enough for his mother. And his mother, I think that she, she improves a little bit by the end of the book, but she's a very rigid person. And she likes things to be, look a certain way and be a certain way, but no one feels seen. And it's really hard as a teenager to feel seen by people for who you want to be. It's really hard to try to be who you want to be as a teenager without somebody maybe in your family saying, what are you doing? That's not you. And you're like, but wait, I already, I'm trying to know who I am. And it, it, and sometimes parents push back on that a little bit. And I, I try to remember with my own kids that they're not me and their experiences growing up and going to school and their friend groups are not what I had. Like they're their own people. I don't expect them to want to watch the big bang theory with me, for instance, you know, they can, they need to do what they're going to do and figure out who they are. It's just my job to be there if they need some help, if things don't go well. That's such a good point. I have been thinking about that a lot. And there's sort of this language around uh, parenting that you see online often where people say things like, oh, this is my mini me. And I always just cringe. I know people are just saying, oh, this kid looks like me. But even then, there's already so much pressure as a child to live up to whatever expectations your parents had of what their family would be like. And I think that is something all adults need to acknowledge. Children are born with an expectation. You have an idea of who you want your kids to be. And even the, the, the most progressive, you know, warmest, fuzziest of us, of course we've imagined, right? Like what our family should be like, what our family could be like. And there is so much ego in parenting, right? There's a lot of ego. And I like the startling, one of the startling things about parenthood for me was when you become a parent and then, you know, your kid's like, I'm going to say like three or four or five. And you wake up one day and realize my reaction to that situation was exactly how my dad would have reacted. And then you're like, where did that come from? Wow. That stuff is really ingrained in you. And if it was a good thing, I guess you could be like, okay. But if it was a bad thing, you have to be like, okay, (laughs) I gotta, I have to actively work in certain situations to assess the situation on its own and not react how, you know, how things have been ingrained in me from the way that I was raised. And I don't know that a lot of parents do that. And in the book, Emmy, like her mother decorates her room and picks out her clothes and makes her lunch. (laughs) She just wants to eat Doritos and not carrots and hummus. Like let her eat Doritos. She did like Emmy has no idea. And Joey's been relegated to being the bad one. No, No one really knows who Joey is. And so he gave up and retreated into drugs where it didn't matter if no one saw you at all. Teens can feel invisible even when they're sitting in a room full of their family. It's just an ache inside you when you're a teenager and you don't, you don't really know what to do. And I cringe too when I hear people saying, here's my little mini me. And I'm like, they're not you. The great thing about them is that they're their whole unique person that is going to unfold before you from a period of birth to like 30 years. And then you're going to see what happens. They're not. And 
like, and you'd be home now. That's, that's the thing I was trying to do with Joey's characters that you have to take your kids as they are. And Emmy, like the kid in front of you, maybe that's not the kid that you had in your parenting journal. Like my child is going to grow up and it's going to be this way. And that's, that might not be the kid in front of you. The kid in front of you is yours though. And you have to take them right where they are for everything that they are, even if it's not what you expected. And even if it's painful and you need to love them for that, right? You have to do that. And it is so surprising that people can look at a baby, right? And say that, oh, look at this. Oh, it's just, mm, can't wait to see who you become. And then they go through the period of becoming who they are. And it is difficult and sometimes irritating. My mother slapped me twice in high school that I remember. Um, I love when you talk about your mother on like your Instagram and your stories and just like, these are great. Like they're honest and they're compelling and they're funny and they're touching and they're sad. Like, and I'm like, I need to know your mother. She was great. She's great. She was just here a week ago and we were sitting in the living room and she said something like, I mean, you know, we just didn't really talk about feelings, you know, when you were a kid, was that bad? Cause I'd just gotten out of a one hour intense conversation with a child about every feeling that they've had and helping them sort through things. And through what we didn't get to spend the evening together, my mother and I, because I was sucked into that, which is where I belonged. And I could sense like a little bit of insecurity with her, right? Like, we didn't do that. Was that bad? No, no one in the 90s, except Kathleen Glasgow's mom, <laughs> was talking to their kids like this. Truly, this is why I'm so astonished because I did have good parents. I had a good mother. And I was telling her, I, I just did not know how to open my mouth and say what I needed because I also didn't even know what I needed. Because at that age, I felt so stuck in people's perceptions of me, in my perception of who I could or should be. I just, I did not know how to raise my hand and say help. I didn't know. Who knows? I mean, and that's the thing about reading books too, is sometimes books give you the language to say what you need to say to someone because you find it in a character and you're like, okay, this is how I can tell someone like what I'm feeling. And my, my mother was very, we were just very close. And she considered me for a long time to be her mini me. Like she gave me this perm when I was in seventh grade, like a really tight, short, close to the head perm, like she had. And I was just mortified for an entire year. And I had to break out of that. Well, even when I broke out of that and I went so far to the other side, I mean, she supported me fully and emotionally in many ways. Like she used to bring her typewriter home from work so that I could like type stories all weekend. Like she supported that, you know, and that was one of those big IBM selectrics. And she Ooh, had to be taking those, those. Yeah. She had to be taking those ink cartridges too from like the supply closet, but she was always supportive of that. Like she never said, Oh, you can't be a writer. You have to do something else. She's like, no, here's the typewriter. Right. But she was firm in the sense that she had to be firm. Like you're harming yourself. You need to go to the psychiatric hospital. And even though that would happen like over and over and over again, she would just keep supporting me. Like she never made me feel ashamed of 
what was happening to me or anything, which I think is, it is unusual for a parent of that time because she definitely was not brought up that way because she was, you know, she got married in like 61 when she was like 23 right out of college. So she was from a much more stringent time. How do you talk to your kids about your experience as an adolescent? (laughs) You mentioned psych wards. You mentioned being kicked out of school for not going, the irony. You mentioned drug use. How do you talk to your children about this without, one, I guess, freaking them out, or two, falling into that trap of forgetting that they're not you? Kids are not the same as each other. And so the information that they can upload to their brains sometimes has to be given to them in different ways and methods. My oldest is 13 and I have scars from self-harming. And so when your child is really little, they'll be like, oh, it happened. And you can say things like, oh, a very large cat like scratched me or something. They're like, oh, that kitty. And then that's like fun. And I think it was only really two years ago that it kind of, and I knew I was going to have to have this chat with him, but it kind of occurred to him that maybe that book, Girl in Pieces, that I had written, like maybe I was doing what was happening in that book, like to myself, because he saw a lot of girls at his school reading the book. And I had the book and I told him, I don't actually think that you are ready to read this book because I don't think it's your type of book emotionally, really. And I, I don't because he prefers a different a different type of literature. And it, we just had the talk and I said, well, those experiences were experiences that I had. But the girl in the book, her story is mostly fiction. But the way that she feels about what she does to herself is drawn from the way that I felt. I think it's really important when you have to relay difficult information about your past life to your children that you'd be very careful with what kind of information you're giving them because you don't want them to carry that pain for you. Like he should be having his own year of being 13, 14, 15, 16 without sometimes looking at me and feeling bad for the things that happened to me. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It really does. I don't need sympathy from my child. I think if you're asking your child for sympathy for something that happened to you a long time ago or things that happened to you, that's putting an incredible burden on them. And you're asking them to caretake you. And it's my job to caretake my child, not have them continually run through the things that happened to me as a child in their own head. Exactly. Do you ever have like a fear that your children will experience the same kinds of pain you did? Yes. Like, absolutely. How could you not? I think that takes some parents off guard too, is because you're like your one hope and it's a really great hope is that your children will not experience any of the pain that you might have experienced growing up, whether it's something like getting a broken heart or being assaulted, but you cannot protect your children from the world. You can only give them some tools to maneuver their way through it. My children are going to get their hearts broken. And that is really going to kill me to have to watch that because I'm going to remember 
what that felt like. And there are things that are going to happen to my children that are going to be even more painful. And all I can do is just be there and not judge. The world is going to come for you in some way. It's going to hit you. They have experienced grief for the first time in the past two years. And watching that has been really interesting from a child's perspective, as opposed to like my adult perspective. You just have to sit there and listen to them. You have to let them talk. If they don't have words, that's okay. But like you're, I can't erase that grief that they feel. You have to carry that. It's, it's something that is going to live inside you forever. You're going to carry that with you. I mean, I, I wish that I could protect them from everything, but I, I can't. And it, you know, like branching out, the people that are trying to ban books, <laughs> it's just like, wow, that's the one safe space that any kid has is finding a book that's for them and experiencing something on the page that, you know, they didn't know they'd get to experience. Just let kids read. Do your kids have the internet? Because I can tell you, they've seen a lot. Oh, they're going to find way worse stuff on the internet than in any book. I would. <laughs> the way I feel about banning books is what a futile, impotent effort at control, because the more everybody knows this about teenagers, everybody knows this about basically any kind of person, the more you tell a person what not to do, the more they want to do it. Yeah, that's exactly it. The great thing about libraries is that, you know what? I don't even know half the books that are in a library. Some of them I might be like, well, that seems gross. But you know what? I wouldn't know it unless I went looking for it. And even if I didn't like it, it's not up to me because I'm not going to read it. Like you read what you want to read. Everybody else reads what they want to read. If you don't want your child reading it, you can do that permission form or whatever you want, but they're going to find a way to access it because I don't know if you know about the internet or not, but you don't get to say like what everybody else gets to read. But you did just pique people's interest in it, which is why I'm telling everyone to ban You'd Be Home Now by Kathleen Glasgow. (laughs) That is the takeaway from this episode. I feel like bizarrely, my books have like skated by on like soft shadow bands. Like for Girl and Pieces, it's like they'll put it in a classroom library, like really quietly, just so kids can take it out. Mm. But it's not like taught in the class. So it doesn't get like widespread Because I hear from teachers who are like, I have students who need to read this book and it's in my classroom library and it's consistently checked out and it's in our school library and it's consistently checked out. But they don't teach it, but they know that it's there for the students that need it. Because that would be that would be a very difficult book to teach at that level. And so, but, you know, it's like teachers know what they're doing. It's their job. And librarians know Yeah, literally their job. They literally go to school for it. It's wild, but they absolutely (laughs) are aware of what they're doing. They like, you have degrees. Yeah, wild, wild. So our adolescences were so different that I told my husband, Aaron, that my high school, there were no parties at my (laughs) high school. And that's how he he was like, oh, buddy. (laughs) He's like, you think you went to the only high school in America with no parties? I'm like, yeah, we just didn't have parties. He's like, no, you weren't invited to the No, that's so sad. I was like, no, I think we just didn't have them. Anyways. Are you watching Euphoria? I only watched the first season and it ruined my life. (laughs) So 
Okay, so, but the character of Maddie and Nate and the whole dating violence and him choking her. And so I am watching this with my teenager. We fast forward through, through some things that he's like, I don't want to watch that. And I'm like, I don't want to watch that with you. And we got to the choking scene in like the aftermath. And he said, well, why is Maddie even going back to him? And I said, look, it's basically what I told you. I'm like, the first time you have this like really deep, all encompassing love. One, it's very hard to imagine yourself without that person. They're entwined. He's abusive. She doesn't know any other form of relationship. It's not good, but it's also very hard sometimes to leave in that situation. And we don't like judge or shame people. You just remain there for them. And that's why she goes back because he has been loyal to her like all along. He put flowers in her locker. He treats her like she thinks she should be treated. And I do want to say, though, in the second season, they do address that more. And she admits to the woman that she babysits for that she says, I don't know what it's like not to fight in a relationship. And I really like that they brought that thread back and that they're kind of examining it. And she's not with Nate at that point. Yeah, I, I had to tap out after that first season. I was like, I don't know that I'm ready to have a teenager and witness this version of teenagehood, whatever that says about me. It was a lot. Also, sometimes I think when things are extremely difficult in life, I cannot consume any difficulty. I need the dumbest comedies possible. I need, you know, I need a a beach read. I need to listen to a podcast that is recapping the Real Housewives franchises. I need to keep things as light as possible. And I need life to, I need art to not feel anything like life. Exactly. I'm like working my way through Big Bang Theory and I'm like the last person on earth. And I'm like, oh, this is great because this is just really funny. And it's like nothing. And I love all of them. You've got 12 years to get through. That is such a treasure. Such a treasure. That was <laughs> in, in my 20s. The thing that we watched at night because there were so many seasons of it was How I Met Your Mother. We just would turn that on. The DVDs from Netflix back in the day and just zone out after our you know stressful work days in corporate America, watching something with a laugh track. You know, watching something that literally laughs for you or indicates when you should be laughing. You know what? Tell me when to laugh. Tell me. Tell me when to laugh. I need to know. Tell me when to laugh and I'll be there. I didn't do anything wild in (laughs) high school whatsoever, which is why I think I can't handle euphoria. I can't handle it. But you are thrilled by that comparison. It was a beautiful recommendation of your book. Why do you think people are so obsessed with teenagers right now? YA is booming. Euphoria is like the number one show in my TikTok feed, at least. Oh, yeah. Oh, on TikTok, I love what people are saying about uh, Euphoria. I love all the memes. Because it, it seems like it should be the time when you get to do anything you want before life really clamps you down or you learn too much. I mean, you're, you're literally running, some people, running wild emotionally. But that show, it's important to note, like the parties in that show, most teenage parties are like five kids sitting in a basement 
or in the back of somebody's truck, like parked somewhere with like a bottle of Boone's Farm, if even that. So it's not typical, but like I like the show because of it. It's over amped. And everyone says the director, he should not be the only one in the writer's room and he can't control himself. And it's like, oh, I totally get it. And I love it. And part of me thinks that it's because he is also, he's been in recovery for a long time. And a lot of his addiction experiences, he filters through Rue. And part of me is like, you know what, Sam Levinson, you have not set your, your addiction boundary yet. You will do everything like writing. Cause it is for me. Cause I'll put everything in a book because that's actually kind of a healthy way for me to be an addict. Do you know what I mean? Like I'll do anything and I'll go right to the edge. And then my editor has to say, no, no, we're taking out these, you know, it's going to total a hundred pages and uh, you're going to restrain yourself. And perhaps someone should be telling him that, but it's, he makes adolescence look gorgeous and sad and painful and beautiful and sultry and all the things that it was not for a lot of people. And that's probably why. And I think adults like watching that show because maybe some of the characters are the way they were or they just want to, they just like it because it looks gorgeous, sad, sexy, sultry, over the top. He uses film. It looks beautiful. They shoot it on sound stages. And who doesn't want to be younger? Who doesn't want to be younger and who doesn't want to sort of watch like wish fulfillment? Yeah. Almost of what you would have said, what you could have said, what your life could have been like. I don't even need to watch Euphoria to enjoy all the TikToks. And one of my favorite ones is when people show like Euphoria teens and then them as a teenager, like in the millennium. And I'm going to make one of those because it's so funny. See, people people get it. Like you, you can like love this show and also be like, it is completely unrealistic for most people's adolescent experience. But you love it because he, he amps it up. It's like a concert film about teenagerhood. Kathleen Glasgow's YA novel, You'd Be Home Now, is available wherever you get books, but obviously we will link it in our description. You'll also be able to find links to her other books as well. Let us all know what you think about this book or other YA books you love or any other book that you would like to hear us talk about on The Terrible Reading Club. We cannot do this without you. Call us at 612-568-4441. That's 612-568-4441. I'm Nora McInerney. This is Terrible Reading Club is a part of the show Terrible. Thanks for asking. I am also an author. I really, I really what? I really write books? Uh, I do. My fifth one is coming out in October, but I write funny books with sad things in them, kind of like this show. You can find my books wherever you find books or on my website, which is noraborealis.com. Terrible Thanks for Asking is a production of American Public Media's APM Studios, where the executives in charge are Lily Kim, Alex Schaefer, and Joanne Griffith. Our theme music is by the beautiful, lovely, wonderful Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Our production team is Marcel Malikibu, Jordan Turgeon, Jacob Maldonado Medina, and Megan Palmer. Our executive producer is Beth Perlman, and we love her. <laughs> <laughs>